You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter, in for Rob Farah today. Now it's this week's edition of Food Friday, and we're not going to overthink things. It's fall, and that means apples are ready to use in the kitchen. We're going to talk about expanding the varieties of apples we use, not judging one by its cover, and getting creative in how we cook them. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. What's your favorite way to use apples in the kitchen? Your best recipe for baking with apples? Uh, What's the most creative way that you've integrated apples into a recipe? And have you tried a new variety lately? What'd you think? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Laurel Burleson is the owner of Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison, and she's with me here in the studio. Laurel, welcome to Central Time. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, before we dive into the, the cooking and the baking, I just want to find out a little bit more about um, your business, Ugly Apple. Um, can you tell us how it started and where the ugly aspect came from? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a chef by profession. i am uh, been at it now close to 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started when I was in high school. I loved it. Went to school in the UP Uh, Northern Michigan University to get a degree in hospitality management, Mm -hmm. Um, always with the goal of being a chef and eventually owning my own business. And uh, what that business would look like changed a lot over the years. But as I worked in some larger, um, more corporate environments, like a, a major convention hotel and things like that, food waste really started bothering me, mm-hmm. you know, and there's like a certain amount that restaurants can try to do with it. Um, but it was just something that's kind of an ongoing problem. And, and the more I kind of dug into it personally, I realized I wanted to focus on it as part of my business and that especially food from farmers um, that is locally grown and perfectly good but might be blemished or scratch and dent, that sort of thing, like should not go to waste. And so that's why I decided to call my business The Ugly Apple when I opened it um, going on seven years ago now Mm -hmm. as a food cart, um, focusing on the the foods that would go to waste um, but that don't deserve to. Yeah, I think I saw you talking somewhere about beets in a fine dining restaurant that you yeah. need to be cut into cubes, but that means you're losing like 30% of the beet. Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, oh, you want like a perfect beet on this beautiful dish that's supposed to be art. And I understand that. But then it's like, well, yeah, once in a while, sure. But like what happens to the rest of that beet? <laughs> yeah. Well, when it comes to apples, uh, there I don't think there's one conventionally attractive apple because there's so many different types. Um, we probably see about a dozen in the grocery store. But could you just tell us about like how much we're missing out on in the world of apples. Yeah, well, we're really lucky here in Wisconsin that there are tons of orchards. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some of the orchards I work with grow, like, over 120 varieties of apples. Like, insane. And some of that has to do with the way, and again, I'm not an orchardist. Um, They can really go into a lot of detail if you're interested. But um, apples don't seed the same variety. So they have to kind of splice to, to make the same type of apple grow on a tree. So I feel like there's a lot of different kind of like varieties that, that are possible. Um, and it's, it's really amazing. And starting a lot earlier than you'd think, too. Like some apples ripen, like the first one's like the end of July, beginning of August. Oh, it's a pretty long season, um, isn't it? Yeah. And then some can winter over, you know, the, the later varieties 
once it gets cold, they're still good, and then they can winter over kind of into the spring. Wow. And if, you know, held in the right environment, like in a, in a refrigerator. Um, so it's pretty amazing, like, what's possible. Um, and everything from, like, very tart, very juicy to, I mean, super sweet and all sorts of different textures uh, for different either baking or making sauce or making soup and kind of anything you can think of. And I understand you have a, a story about learning about the golden russet apple in particular. Yeah. Um, so this was like the first year that I opened. Um, and I was working with a, an apple orchard. And it was it was maybe like February or March. So like wintered over apples from, from that fall. And I had been going pretty small scale, just getting like 10 or 15 pounds at a time. And the um, it was uh, Appleberry Farm on the kind of the western side of Madison. Um, and I was asking Farmer David, like, uh, hey, which ones which ones are good for sauce? He would kind of let me choose, like, of what he had stored. And he was like, oh, golden russets. And I had passed them over the last couple weeks because they were brownish and they looked like they were kind of soft. And they were just not the ones that I was choosing. But I was going to trust him. I wasn't going to argue with him. So I was like, okay, I'll take 10 pounds of the golden russets. And they were not mealy not squishy, like amazingly, like a little bit tart and a little bit sweet, but also just like had this bright juiciness. I, they, they, were, they became like instantly my favorite apple. Wow. And it's like a perfect kind of lesson because these are like brown, like russet. The word russet is like russet potato, like russeted is kind of like a texture and a color. Um, so like not shiny, not pretty. These are like the ugliest apples. And I like, kicked myself a little bit because I called my business the ugly apple and that I was passing <laughs> up the ugliest apples that ended up being the best, like the most delicious. I've seen those apples too and I have passed them over because they're not that attractive. And I guess that goes to show, talk to the person growing them. Yeah, definitely. Trust your farmer. And I mean, that's kind of across the board. You know, there's, again, in Wisconsin, we're lucky to have a lot of farmer's markets. And if you can have a conversation with the person growing your food, um, you can find some real gems of things that you might not be your favorite, but give them a shot. And, you know, this year at the cafe, too, we got some amazing green beans. And you wouldn't think there'd be that much different in green beans. But these were super sweet, delicious, not starchy green beans. And it was like, whoa, that's but right from the farmer. We got we we're really lucky to have that. Yeah. And uh, we are talking right now with Laurel Burleson, owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison. We're talking apples on this edition of Food Friday, all types of apples. And uh, Laurel, you gave us a couple of recipes. These are up at uh, the WPR.org slash Food Friday webpage. One of these, I love butternut squash soup. This is a butternut squash with apple soup. Can you tell us about how this one comes together? Yeah. So one thing I really like about winter squash um, so, you know, the butternuts, acorns, pumpkins, even there's a ton of, let's talk about varieties of things. There's a ton of different winter squash varieties too. Um, but I like butternut cause it's easy to get to at, you know, grocery store or farmer's market and it can really go a lot of different directions. And so I think a lot of times squash soup, uh, kind of leans towards pie. It's mm. very like spiced cinnamon, nutmeg. Um, but I like this one because the apple and onion makes it kind of bright and savory and fresh. And so 
between the onion, garlic, and sage and uh, brightness of the uh, – use a tart apple. Okay. You can use a sweeter apple too if you want it to lean more into that like squash sweetness. Mm-hmm. But this one's more like sweet, savory, um, a little bit tart. And it comes together really easily, if, especially if you have like an immersion blender. You can just kind of not worry about chopping everything super fine as long as it's all about the same size. You cook it till it's soft, blend it all up, adjust the seasoning, and you're done. Yeah, and how do the apples get incorporated into there? Um, they go in with the squash. So I for okay. for that recipe, I peeled them, but also it's one of those where like eh, you don't have to. If you like a little texture, you can you can leave the skin on. Okay. Um, and again, some varieties, if you leave the skin on, if they're a, a dark enough red apple, like I'm thinking like an Ida red, which is like a later season apple, and a sweeter apple, um, they turn pink when you sauce them, and so it kind of like deepens the color a little bit of the soup too. Um, but yeah, just core them, dice them up, toss them into the squash. Delicious. Down. Yeah. yeah. We've got that recipe up at WPR.org slash food Friday. Um, let's go to the phones. We've got a caller with us right now. Christina is with us in Glenwood. Hi, Christina. Hi there. Thank you. I am all for ugly apples and I'd like to make apple cider, but I don't have a press. Do you have any ideas? Is this possible? Oh, Christina, good question. That um, is a good question. Um, I have never tried to make cider without a press. Um, yeah, I'm that's, not. That's a good question. Uh, Christina, do you um, tend to like like a sweeter cider or something more tart? Well, what I like to do is blend a variety of organic apples. It doesn't matter. And that would include even crab apples. Just put it all together and see what you end up with. Wow. Yeah. Very cool, Christina. Um, that I think great. There's a lesson in there in terms of blending different varieties of apples. Do you do that, uh, Laurel, in your cooking at all? Yeah, a lot. Actually, I, I also make fruit leather. Um, oh, nice. And so for that, I'll, I'll kind of mill a bunch of different types of apples together um, to kind of give a broader variety of flavor mm-hmm. yeah and i've um, asked folks at the farmer's market too before about like oh what goes in a pie they're like throw it all in there just you know do do several different types of, of varieties of apples that seems to work well yeah yeah but i my my instinct is that i think you need a press to really get cider like you can juice apples like with a juicer mm-hmm. but that would be a different thing i think i think you would need a press but i don't i'm not an expert in cider making gotcha uh, christina thanks for the call uh, laurel you mentioned that fruit leather um how does one make that that sounds really good yeah so um i started just at home too when i wanted to basically i was getting more apples than i could use in just baked goods mm-hmm. and so i was looking for a different product and so i just got a little home dehydrator actually from the thrift store and started playing around with it so basically just uh breaking down apples you can do them um, on the stove, uh, just kind of like how you would make applesauce, but not adding any sugar and um, and doing it that way. Or like n- now I have a food mill, which you can also buy for kind of breaking down tomatoes. So if people who process a lot of uh, fruits and vegetables at home might have like a little t- kind of tabletop food mill and um, just cook the apples until they're totally soft through and then pass them through that until you get a sauce, like a pretty thick sauce. And kind of spread it, um, depending on your dehydrator. Sometimes there's special sheets for them. Um, but, like, not too thick. Maybe, gosh, I'm trying to think. I do it by weight in my pan, so I'm trying to think how thick it actually is. Maybe a quarter inch. 
But then that's also something you can experiment with and experiment with different adding chia seeds or flax seeds or different fruits blended in. Like I do six different varieties. Um, So it's pretty easy to experiment with at home and find something that's unique that preserves a lot of apples for a really long time. And that's sugar free or no sugar added at least. Um, And a great snack. And yeah. Yeah. It's Food Friday, and we're talking with Laurel Burleson uh, in the studio, owner of the Ugly Apple Cafe in Madison, and we're talking about using apples in the kitchen or on the grill or over the fire pit or any way you might want. You can call in at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have for our guest? Are you having any apple-related recipes going in the kitchen, maybe right now? What's your favorite recipe that you've made that you snuck apples into? And what is your favorite variety of apple this time of year? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation in just a minute here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Dean Knetter. Right now we're picking up our Food Friday talk with Laurel Burleson, owner of Madison's Ugly Apple Cafe. We're talking about cooking or baking with apples, all types. You can join in at 800-642-1234. We want to hear your favorite apple recipes, your favorite varieties. That's 800-642-1234. Before the break, Laurel, I mentioned uh, the possibility of grilling apples. Um, is this something you've tried out? Yeah, actually, um, in some different kind of recipes in the past here and there. How does it work? Um, you need an apple that's pretty firm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, not like a Macintosh, something like a baking apple um, or some sweeter ones, too. Um, I don't again, I'm trying to think of like like a Zestar would be good, mm. maybe or like those Ida Reds that I mentioned or uh, again, like a baking apple, like a like a Granny Smith or um, the ones that I love to bake with are it's like a weird like French heirloom apple. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, um, and you get the grill really, really hot. And then just brush a little oil on the apples and give it kind of enough surface area. So like um, maybe a half inch thick uh, slice and kind of slice either from top to bottom or side to side. Um, But just as long as you have something to grab with your tongs and then just get them right on there and make sure they're pressed kind of down enough and give them just maybe a minute or two on a really, really hot grill and then flip them over and you get nice grill lines. That goes really well with like pork, for mm. example. It kind of adds a little savory smoke to your apples and then you're kind of two-thirds of the way there with your garnish. You don't have to try too much harder. I've tried making the apple onion garnish like in a saute pan mm. before. I, I can't quite get the the balance between crispness and mushiness of the apple. It always seems a little off. I mean, do you have any recommendations for... Oil versus butter or medium versus high heat? It sounds like maybe high heat with the Yeah, the grill I would say being, I would say yeah. high heat um and probably oil, but oh, it also okay. depends on the type of apple. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have one that's like gonna mush, it's gonna mush. Yeah. Um but sometimes that's I feel like it's it's one of those like if you can kind of get it to be part of like a sauce sort of it's like a little mush is okay yeah um hmm, some some flexibility along the way yeah like being able to go with it whichever Mm -hmm. way it takes you 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then that's kind of a lot of my philosophy with things at the cafe too. It's like, what do we, what do we have to work with? What do we get from a farmer? What's feeling good in the season? Like what can we put together to make something that's like new and different, but yummy. And that's why too, even coming up with recipes for this segment, like the soup, it's like, oh, I don't really write that down. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I should probably write this down as I go. So we had this squash soup in the cafe this week uh, because I made it to, you know, make sure it was correct and not just the kind of bits that I throw in when I'm doing things in my head. Sure. Uh, let's go back to our phones right now. We've got Barry with us in Cross Plains. Hi, Barry. Hi. I have a question. Uh, many years ago, I during a drought year, I bought Connell red apples, and they were the best apples I had ever tasted. Many years, several years after that, the apples never tasted the same. What is the story there? Hmm. Well, Barry, thanks for the call. Um, the Connell Red, Laurel, is that one that you've had before? That is not one that I've had before, actually. Connell Red. I'm going to ask. Um, I work really closely with Door Creek Orchard right now in um, Cottage, yeah, Cottage Grove. Um, I'm going to have to ask Liz about that. Um, but drought year versus um, other years, I mean, would have a ton to do with it. And also just like the when the frost is and um, even for the following year. So the, the kind of anecdote I have about that is um, uh, three years ago now, I think two or three years ago, um, Honeycrisp were not a, a thing that blossomed in Wisconsin, really, at least not in our region. And that's because the year before there was a frost in May, that damaged the blossoms in such a way that the following year, hmm. so not even that year, but the next year, there were no Honeycrisp apples. And so, so much has to do with it. Like orchard owners and farmers who grow fruit and fruit trees, they, they have all my respect. It's such a touchy fruit and it changes so much from year to year. So I, I maybe the drought year had something to do with it and those being amazing. Um, it's Yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah, Barry, thanks for the call, and we will keep the Connell Red on our, our radar. Uh, Laurel, I want to get to the other recipe that you shared with us. Um, this sounds really delicious, apple ginger muffins. Uh, can you tell us how these come together? Yeah, so it's a pretty standard. It's kind of like a cookie um, kind of procedure. You cream the butter and the, the sugar together and um, then kind of add the eggs and vanilla. One thing I really love about this recipe, and this is kind of a, a base recipe that I use for a lot, I can kind of switch out the fruit and the spice to kind of do a lot of different things with it. And because of the applesauce and the rolled oats in it, I think it's really hearty. Like it's not a muffin, it's but it's not dense either. It's not a muffin that's breakfast cake. Mm-hmm. I think some muffins, it's, you know, they might as well be a piece of cake. Like put some frosting on it. You're eating a cupcake. <laughs> um, but this is not like that. It's It's sweet, certainly. There's a lot of sugar in it. But I feel like it's also got some some density to it in such a way that like stays with you for a little bit and you know it's a treat but it's a treat you can feel good about and not you know have a sugar crash 30 minutes later yeah and it has this awesome apple apple streusel topping Mm, which is mm -hmm. really good um i love that kind of like crunchy bit on top of the muffin and also something surprised me it doesn't have cinnamon in it if i'm correct it does not so i kind of took that as a special challenge um, I got a tip that um, Rob, who also hosts this program, um, 
has a cinnamon allergy. And so I took that as a specific challenge to make apple recipes without cinnamon because that's something that typically goes hand in hand. It's really hard to find an apple thing without cinnamon this time of year. And people with a cinnamon allergy must really struggle with that. I I have a few friends and acquaintances who have that. And uh, shout out Margie. Um, And uh, I would love to provide something that's still yummy and in that zone and has that same kind of apple spice element to it without the cinnamon, something that they can enjoy too. Yeah, uh, you can find that recipe at WPR.org slash Food Friday. One more thing I want to ask you about. Um, you have something on your menu right now, an autumn chicken breakfast sandwich with apple mustard. How do you make yeah. apple mustard? What's that like? Yeah, well, there's a couple different ways. Uh, the one that's on our menu right now, it's really yummy. It's a like a Jones Dairy Farm chicken sausage uh, and a fried egg. And this apple mustard is apple butter. So basically taking applesauce and cooking it down very, very slowly until it's very rich and kind of the consistency of butter. A lot of people, when I say apple butter, they think like, oh, I can't have dairy. It's like, nope, it's really, it's just cooked down apples. Uh, You just have to be really slow and patient with cooking them down. And um, if you try to make it at home, be careful with spice because all of that gets condensed. Um, So that's why I don't do any spice in this one. And then mix it with uh, a couple different types of mustard um, so that it's a little bit tart, a little bit sweet. You get that mustard kind of bite that cuts through the richness of the sausage. And it's a really yummy breakfast sandwich that we have right now. That sounds really delicious. Well, uh, Laurel, that's all the time we've got. But thank you so much for coming up in the studio today and, and sharing all this with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We're really quick. We're located downtown in Madison in the lower level of the Dane County Courthouse. Yes, uh, that is the Ugly Apple Cafe. Laurel Burleson is the owner. She's been with us for this week's edition on Food Friday. Uh, We've been talking about apples, all sorts of varieties, and what we can do with them. You can still let us know what you like to do with apples at uh, by emailing ideas at wpr.org that's ideas at wpr.org and find those recipes at wpr.org slash food friday for apple ginger muffins and butternut squash apple soup you're listening to central time i'm dean Kinetter. in today for rob ferret now the u.s house of representatives is still without a speaker since kevin mccarthy was ousted last week That was following a single member's motion to vacate, a condition that McCarthy had allowed for as part of his package of conditions that won him enough votes to become Speaker. Republican Majority Leader in the House, Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana, looked to be the nominee, garnering more internal votes in the conference than Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Then last night, Scalise announced he was pulling out. I just share with my colleagues that I'm withdrawing my name as a candidate for the Speaker-designee. If you look at over the last few weeks, if you look at where our conference is, there's still work to be done. Uh, Our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, There are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. This House of Representatives needs a speaker, and we need to open up the House again. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. Who do you think should be Speaker of the House? Do you want to see Democrats engage with Republicans and make some sort of deal to bring on a more moderate speaker? How do you see that working? 
What questions do you have about what the country can and can't do without a functioning House of Representatives? Call us at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Anthony Tregoski is, is an assistant professor of political science at UW Lacrosse. Anthony, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have got uh, a lot of news in the last week, just in the last 24 hours. But before we get to that, let's back up and get a little context here. You suggest that we should look back to the 2022 midterm elections as a sort of a marker of how we got here. Can you talk about that? Sure. In the 2022 midterm elections, the Republicans gained only nine seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. Now, there was a lot of hype about the prospect of a red wave materializing in the 2022 midterms. And it's understandable why there would have been that type of speculation. After all, we know that historically, the party of the president has not done well in midterm elections. So a lot of people were expecting the Democrats to do very poorly in the midterm elections and the Republicans to do quite well. However, House Republicans lost a lot of competitive districts. Their candidates did not do well in many of the competitive districts, the swing districts, and the Republicans more broadly were harmed by the backlash to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. So all of that adds up to a poorer than expected performance for Republicans in the 2022 midterm elections. It does give them a razor thin majority in the House. That means in practice, to become Speaker, Kevin McCarthy had to make deals with all sorts of factions, all sorts of individuals within the House Republican Conference. And in doing that, he really laid the groundwork for his own demise as Speaker. He made it possible for any one member of the House to trigger a motion to vacate, which would lead to a vote on removing the Speaker. As we saw, Matt Gates of Florida did exactly that. So the broader context here is significant. If the Republicans had an overwhelming majority in the House of Representatives, then a few dissenters here and there, a few people who don't want to go with the party line, well, that wouldn't really matter so much if they had a large majority. But they have a razor-thin majority, such a small margin for error. And that means that almost everyone in the House Republican Conference has to be on board and we have seen that they are just not a unified front nowadays. <laughs> when I heard Steve Scalise say that there is still work to be done, that seemed to be the understatement of the century, perhaps. There is a lot of work to be done in the House Republican Conference to get to the point where they are able to elect a new Speaker of the House. So after McCarthy was ousted, we saw Representatives Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise emerge as the two primary candidates. And Scalise won the most votes in an internal uh, party vote to become the nominee. That's what we thought we would be talking with you about today, Anthony. But then last night he announced he was withdrawing. Do we know what happened? Why? Steve Scalise was just not able to get to the magic number, 217. There are currently 433 members of the House of Representatives, so a majority is 217. It is true that Steve Scalise won that internal vote within the House Republican Conference, but to become Speaker of the House, he needs to win a majority of the overall membership of the House of Representatives. That means that 
217 of the House Republicans would have needed to be on board in order to elect him speaker. And it was quickly apparent that he had an uphill battle to get to that 217 magic number. In fact, the uphill battle seemed so significant that he quickly bowed out of the race to become speaker. He quickly ended his efforts to become speaker, even after he had been chosen by a majority of his House Republican colleagues. Now, Scalise has, for a period of time, been the second-ranking House Republican. He has generated some goodwill within his party due to his high-ranking position, but there were different areas of opposition that emerged within the party, and it just seemed like too steep of a hill for him to climb in his view. So that left him in the position where he decided to remain majority leader. Meanwhile, Jim Jordan, the hard-charging member of the Republican conference, the chair of the House Judiciary Committee, he has become well-known for his frequent appearances on Fox News. He has become a, a very well-known for his outspokenness and his confrontational style in these high-profile committee hearings that he has participated in. And he stepped up today as a speaker candidate, having lost previously to Scalise. He wins the vote today, but he still is nowhere near that 217 magic number. It leaves the House Republicans in a state of turmoil, and it leaves a real, real sense of uncertainty in the Capitol as the Republicans continue to try to figure out their next move here. We're talking with Anthony Tregoski, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse, about the effort to elect a new House Speaker. Uh, we uh, talked with Representative Tom Tiffany on the morning show this morning, and he was asked about the Freedom Caucus, who has been a big player in all of the House Speaker drama we've seen over the past few weeks. Here's what he said to host Kate Archer-Kent. Have you had conversations with, with members of the Freedom Caucus? Do you know what they want here? Yeah, so this is not just the Freedom Caucus. So primarily them in regards to the McCarthy fight. But with um, Leader Scalise, that was not the Freedom Caucus that scuttled his candidacy. You had people that you would call much more moderate, for example, Nancy Mace from South Carolina, that were not supporting um, Scalise. So that was not a Freedom Caucus problem for um, Leader Scalise. I think that we need to get someone that bridges those um, philosophical divisions and brings us together. Hopefully we'll get that person that can bring unity, vision, and leadership um, for us as the next speaker. Anthony, what do you think about uh, what Representative Tiffany had to say there about the role of the Freedom Caucus? Yeah, I'm just not sure who that person is that would be able to bridge those divides within the Republican Party. Now, to the point about the Freedom Caucus, Jim Jordan is a relevant figure here because he is a founding member of the House Freedom Caucus. The House Freedom Caucus in the Republican Party became very well known for its use of hardball legislative tactics. Of course, it wouldn't be surprising that they would play hardball in a speaker's election, that they might try to get concessions from Scalise or that they might try to hold up the process to get something out of this process that they feel is important to them. But to Representative Tiffany's broader point about unity within the Republican conference, 
I'm just not sure who that person is who can bridge those very real divides that Representative Tiffany discussed. And it just leaves the House Republicans adrift at this point, trying to figure out who is that person who can bridge those divides. Now, in the past, Dean, it was Paul Ryan, Wisconsin's own Paul Ryan. After the downfall of John Boehner as speaker in the latter parts of the Obama presidency, Paul Ryan emerged as the person who could bring the Republican Party together. He could unite the different factions of the Republican Party, and everyone could more or less be on board with the idea of a Ryan speakership. Right now, there is no Paul Ryan figure that I'm aware of who can emerge as the person who can bring everyone together, make everyone happy, and the party can unify behind them. It just is far from clear who that person might be. And Anthony, when it comes to those sticking points and making people happy, I'm curious what you're seeing. Are the points of contention more around, I don't know, rules and committee assignments and that kind of thing? Or are there significant policy issues here that wings of the party are disagreeing on? I think it's a combination of both. There are some tactical differences in the Republican Party. We noted Jim Jordan and the House Freedom Caucus and their penchant for hardball tactics. They have talked about impeaching Joe Biden. They have talked about other things to really try to bring the fight to the Democratic Party and really have high stakes showdowns with President Biden and the Republican majority in the Senate. So for sure, there are tactical issues at play here. There are also some policy differences inside the Republican Party. And the combination of internal policy disagreement and internal tactical disagreement just makes it all the more difficult to the party to for the party to find that consensus speaker candidate who can unify the party around a common policy and tactical approach. Anthony Tregoski stays with us, assistant professor of political science at UW-La Crosse, talking about the latest efforts to fill a vacant Speaker of the House position. We want to hear what you think at 800-642-1234. What questions do you have for our guest about how all this works? What's your reaction to what's happening in the House? If you're a Republican voter, how do you want to see this resolved? Who would you want as Speaker? Call in with your thoughts and questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234, or you can email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Dean Knetter. We continue our talk about the Speaker of the House vacancy with Anthony Tregoski, Assistant Professor of Political Science at UW-La Crosse. We're also taking your calls at 800 642 Let's go to the phones now. We have Mark in Hartford. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark, are you there? Oh, Mark, I think our connection is bad. I'm sorry, but uh, Mark was pointing out that um, the Democratic Party is sticking together throughout this process as he sees it, and the Republicans are not, and he wants to see them come together and solve this issue. Anthony, can you talk about, I don't know, how the the Democrats are, are reacting to this entire process? 
I think that's an excellent point. After Nancy Pelosi bowed out of the House Democratic leadership, a natural question was who would emerge as her successor at the top of the House Democratic leadership system. And Hakeem Jeffries of New York emerged as that consensus candidate among House Democrats. There has been very little internal dissent no public dissent that I'm aware of in the House Democratic Caucus when it comes to their support for Hakeem Jeffries as their leader. Now, strategically for the Democrats, they have some interesting decisions here. Do they maintain a unified front and oppose anyone who the Republicans might put up as a speaker candidate? Do they try to make a deal with some of those moderate House Republicans, those Republicans who come from districts that are highly competitive, those House Republicans who come from districts that Joe Biden carried in the previous presidential election? Now, previously, Dean, the idea of a bipartisan vote for a speaker would be simply comical. Votes for speaker are along party line. That is what we would expect. But there does seem to be some perhaps serious talk emerging in Washington about a bipartisan coalition that might elect a speaker. And I don't know exactly what to make of that. It is just so unfamiliar, such an unusual situation to be in. But that is something that Democrats are going to have to figure out. Do they maybe want to work with Republicans to elect a speaker, put together that majority coalition on the floor? Or do they want to maintain kind of an approach that, hey, the Republicans have to figure this out. This is not our problem. This is something that internally the Republicans have to figure out. So a lot of the focus is naturally on the turmoil within the House Republican conference, but the Democrats have a potentially interesting role to play here as well. Let's go next to Rob in Winona, Minnesota. Rob, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm just wondering if the Republicans can't for a lengthy period of time, uh, coalesce on a speaker, what happens to legislation in the United States? Rob, that's a great question. A timely one. Anthony, what do you think? Well, the obvious answer is nothing much. Without a Speaker of the House, there isn't much that the House of Representatives can do. One thing that I would watch for on that note, though, is to watch the potential role of the Speaker pro tem Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. Now, his role is mainly just to facilitate the election of a new speaker. But there might be some scenario where he gets empowered to move legislation forward or to just get things moving again policy-wise. That would be a Band-Aid solution that is not a long-term fix to this problem. Overall, the way out of this is to elect a new speaker, but a stopgap situation might be to temporarily empower McHenry as someone who can get things moving a little bit policy-wise. Rob, thanks for the call and the question. Uh, We'll go next to Sarah in Libertyville, Illinois. Sarah, hi. Hey. Listen, I think I read, but I'm not sure, so I'm asking that the reason Steve Scalise was not confirmed is because the Freedom Caucus he wasn't extreme enough for the Freedom Caucus. Is that is that true? And because that's just really scary. And so what about Jim Jordan? Will they support him? 
Gotcha. Sarah, thanks for the question. Anthony, what do we know about uh, where the opposition to Scalise came from? Well, statistically, based on political scientists' statistical measures of ideology, Scalise is more conservative than most House Republicans. But Jim Jordan is way more conservative than most House Republicans. So the comparison here might be relevant in explaining what happened. Certainly, given the comparison between the two, Jordan is clearly the most conservative option, even though on balance, Scalise is quite a conservative Republican. We have also seen support for Scalise emerge from former President Trump, as well as conservative media personalities. For example, on social media today, Sean Hannity posted his support for uh, Jim Jordan as speaker and urged his followers to call members of Congress to support Jim Jordan. Now, on that note, Dean, I would just mention that according to an analysis done by Media Matters, which is a liberal media watchdog group, they found that over the past roughly six years, no other sitting member of Congress has made as many appearances on Fox News as Jim Jordan has. So I expect that there is going to be significant grassroots conservative support for Jim Jordan as speaker. He is such a familiar presence on conservative media like Fox News, and he has gained a national following given his high profile position on the House Judiciary Committee. I don't know how much that moves the needle for him. He's got a lot of House Republicans he would need to flip in order to become speaker. But Jordan does have that national profile owing to his eagerness to involve himself in political controversies and his very, very frequent presence in conservative media. We've got time for one more call. Let's go to Charles in Wausau. Hi, Charles. Hi there. I would love to see a bipartisan effort to elect a new speaker. I live in uh, Representative Tiffany's district, so (laughs) if he's listening, I would love to see some kind of bipartisan effort happen. Um, But my question is, when Kevin McCarthy was booted out, um, I was so surprised to see universally, uh, unanimously rather, all of the Democrats, you know, voted to do the same. That just seems so irresponsible. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I just think that that was, with all of the things that need to be done in the House, how could they do that? Charles, thanks for the call. And there is a lot of important stuff on the table. Budget, the conflict in Israel and Palestine. There's a lot going on, Anthony. But it also seems like there would be a lot of deal-making that needs to be done to get to that bipartisan place. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, The Democrats would have had to be offered a very good deal from former Speaker McCarthy and his allies in order to get on board in saving his position. And the reporting indicates that there simply was not an offer made from McCarthy and his allies to House Democrats that could have perhaps saved McCarthy's position. And that's just how D.C. works. There has been talk about how Democrats maybe should have tried to save McCarthy for the good of the institution. But there has to be something more than that. That's just how D.C. works. It's just the realities of D.C. There would have had to have been some serious concessions made to House Democrats for them to get on board with that plan. And so we'll have to see what the future holds for the prospect of a bipartisan speaker. It just seems preposterous given how we have traditionally thought about House leadership positions and the speakership. But Hey, I mean, we we also thought we wouldn't be in this situation either. So we are truly in a weird and uncertain situation as we 
continue watching the turmoil in D.C. unfold. And Anthony, we've just got about 20 seconds left. When could we see a House floor vote on the speakership, do you think? One thing that Jim Jordan might do is just go to the floor for a vote and force his opponents to go on the record against him. I don't know if that'll happen, but it is certainly available to him as a strategy. A lot to follow, a lot going on. Anthony, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Anthony Tregoski is an assistant professor of political science at UW-La Crosse. We talked with him about the current struggle in the House of Representatives to replace Kevin McCarthy as speaker. Coming up Monday on Central Time, Wisconsin is cleaning up some of its PFAS pollution and sending the waste to Alabama. We'll find out about the concerns it's raising for people in the South. And we'll learn about staffing shortages in the state prison system and poor conditions for incarcerated people. That and more coming up Monday here on Central Time.